Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. As the kids are heading out, you may be thinking, well, how could we kind of follow up on Nation of the Month conversation or our memory verse of the month or the hymn of the month or any of those things that you hear us doing here at Mid-Service Dismissal? Well, Anthony and Lexi have put together some incredible cards, or of the month cards. They're on the resource table on your way out. And they are really just an incredible resource for having intentional conversation with kiddos. You know, a good way to use them would be on the way home. Maybe you keep these in your car and you get in the car on your way home and say, hey, I'd love to talk with you guys about the memory verse of the month. Do you guys know it? And just make small talk on your way home. A good way to engage in spiritual conversation with your kids on the Lord's Day. These are on the resource table in the back. Today, um, this week, marks almost two years of the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. Doesn't it feel crazy? Um, I, it, depending on what day you ask me, it either feels like it was two years ago or it feels like it was 20 years ago. Um, and it feels a little bit like a time warp, but I'd be remiss to not lead us in prayer um, today as we reflect and remember maybe the last two years for you have been relatively calm. Uh, maybe they've been incredibly disruptive. I don't know where you land on that spectrum, but I want to come to the God who hears all of our prayers, both our laments and our thanksgivings. I want to give thanks to God for how he's protected and provided over the last two years. And I want to grieve the loss of life that we've seen, the confusion, disruption societally, culturally, economically, politically that we've seen. Uh, And I want us to bring our prayers to the Lord. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that um, two years in and um, there is a variety of emotions that we feel. God, for some of us, the last two years uh, were marked by unique opportunities. Um, for the last two years, some of us had unique threats, unique obstacles and hurdles in our path. But God, we, we give thanks to the God who hears our prayers. We thank you that you have provided for us, that you have protected us, even the lives that are represented in this room. Um, God, I know that it's easy to believe in just the myth of immortality, um, that we're invulnerable and invincible. Um, and yet, God, we know that our bodies, our hearts, and our minds are more frail than we would care or dare to imagine, and you have protected us. We thank you, God, for that protection, and we pray that that would continue to be the course towards your people and towards those in this room, that there would be a refuge and a protection over us in the life of our church and in the life of our community. God, at the same time that we give thanks for your protection, we acknowledge, God, that there has been um, incredible grief these last two years. There's been the grief of loss of life. There has been societal, cultural disruption. There's been loss of moments and milestones and time and memories that we wish we could have made or events that we wish would have gone differently. And yet, God, there continues to be grief in our heart. And so we bring these griefs to you, God, knowing that you keep count of all of our tossings. You catch every tear in a bottle. And so I pray for those who have grieved and are still grieving. I pray, God, that you would comfort them in the midst of their affliction. I know, God, that for me and for my home, it has been a mixed bag these last two years. There have been blessings and there have been burdens. And I pray, God, that we would be honest with you, that we would come before you as a church family and that we would be able to pour out our heart before you, for you are our refuge, as the psalmist says. We love you, Lord. We do pray for an end to disease, to sickness, to death. We know that that day is coming. It is assured, and we pray that it would come soon with your return. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Each week at the end of our services, we conclude with a benediction that we read and respond to together. We've done this since the first Sunday of Mosaic's life together, but maybe you've missed this, or maybe this is your first time and you don't know what the benediction is, but we rewrite the benediction every year in light of our resolution. 
It's a way of keeping the resolution in front of us. Every year I come to Mosaic and I say, hey, I really feel like the Lord's put this burden on my heart. I take a couple of months away in the fall. I pray through it. uh, And I just ask the Lord, would you just give me uh, a burden for our people? And so this year I came to our people in January of 2022 and laid before you what I really felt like the Lord had put on my heart this year, which is that our resolution for 2022 would be to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. To be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. A people who practice love in a world of hate, who embody peace in a world of anger, who embrace joy in a world of apathy, who cultivate patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, even when it's costly. And as I prayed and reflected this year, it was clear to me very quickly that this was where God was moving my heart. I wanted us to focus on our life together as a church. A lot of that was in response to the last two years, which were incredibly disruptive to cultivating meaningful life together. I don't know if you lived the last two years that I did, but time together with other people, all of a sudden, something that maybe we had taken for granted was jeopardized. It was disrupted. And even the most basic rhythms and routines of practicing a shared life were called into question with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our church family. And so I really felt like this year was an opportunity for restoration and renewal for us as a church family and for our individual households as well. So you may be thinking, well, Pastor, we've already heard this. And it's true. Um, I did preach on this on the first Sunday in January. And you might think, well, why are you coming back to this today? I promise I haven't run out of material. Um, uh, The Bible's full of a lot. And uh, as you've seen in Romans, I want to make even a little passage a lot. Uh, to go through, but I felt like it was important to come back to this over the course of the year because in previous years we've kind of mentioned it on the first Sunday and then not talked about it again. Uh, And yet if it's our resolution, it's probably something we should return to and remember together. And I want to. I want to do that. I want us to ask this question again. And it's not a different question than the question we asked on the first Sunday of the year. It's the same question, but it's a question worth returning to. How can we become a church family who are abundant in the fruit of the Spirit? I think that's a valuable question. I think the fruit of the Spirit on first read appear to be incredibly ordinary. But when you try to practice them, you realize quickly just how extraordinary they are, how hard they can be in the face of the resistance of a broken heart and a broken world. And so I want to read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. After I read it, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond. Thanks be to God. Let me read it. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in a spiritual battle. We are. And I know that it's easy to miss because we're rushing. And that's true. It's easy to miss because we'd rather not see it and our lives are busy. If we're honest with ourselves, that's why. It's not very comfortable to think about living your life in the midst of a spiritual battle, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you absolutely are. And while it's not comfortable to think about life that way, it can be actually terribly inconvenient, it is true, and there's an element to walking with the Lord, a dependency on the power of the Spirit that we will not begin to embrace until we have realized that we are living every day in the midst of a spiritual battle. Every single day. And that battle is not merely a battle between us and the world, although there are times when our walking in and with the Spirit is going to put us in contrast with the world. I think oftentimes, in specifically the Christian circles I grew up in, if there was a spiritual battle, it was almost always conceived of as the Christian versus the world. And again, that's not to say that there isn't some dimension of that there, but the spiritual battle that Paul has in mind here is a spiritual battle that often is taking place in our hearts, in the turmoil of the self. You know, he says in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. As Christians, we are engaged in a battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And you may think, well, well, what are the desires of the flesh? Where do they come from and how do I identify them? Well, I think over the whole of Scripture, we see three kind of dimensions of the desires of the flesh. Where, where do they appear from, maybe is a better way to ask it. The first is our inner sin nature. You know, even after we experience God's grace and salvation, you and I still have the remnants of the brokenness of sin. Do you know that? Hopefully you know it about yourself. If you don't, ask someone who knows you, and they will affirm it in you. I, I promise you. The old remnants, the ruins of a civilization that, yes, has lost its power, but the ruins are still there, and they still create ripples in our life. Our inner sin nature remains. There's a brokenness that remains, what Paul and other places will call the old man. We are born into this world broken, and many of those broken desires, they continue to lurk around in our heart even after we've experienced the grace of salvation. Okay, in the corners and the closets of our heart, there are things there that will grow. Uh, John Calvin, the old theologian and pastor, called the heart an idol factory. The moment you knock down one idol, a hundred idols will take its place. Our heart just generates those things. There's an inner sin nature. And yes, God is changing us, but part of that change is dealing directly with that old nature. That's one place where the desires of the flesh emerge in. Another place is the temptations of the world that we live in. The temptations of the world that we live in. We live in a world with ever-present temptations to settle for less than God. We really do. I mean, we feel this every day. And I, I said it when, I, when we preached on this in, in January, but now there's a whole economy around gaining your attention. Gaining the thoughts and intentions of your heart, gaining your imagination. There's never been more money spent on trying to get you to care, to look, to think, to be preoccupied, to dream, to daydream, to imagine, to nightmare over a specific set of things. So yes, there are ever-present temptations, and one of the most crucial ones is a temptation to give your attention away to lesser things over and over and over again. To do it once produces little impact, but a thousand of those moments every day can produce incredible collateral. 
the temptations of the world we live in, is a place where the desires of the flesh emerge. Another one, and one that we would care to not talk about, is the work of Satan. Now, you've heard me talk a lot more about Satan this year, and I'll promise you, in the years ahead, you're going to hear me even talk more about him. Because for the last 20 years in the life of the church, there's kind of been an, an implicit agreement to just not talk about Satan because it makes us seem weird. And I understand that. It, it does. I, I, I get it. Because oftentimes when we think about Satan, we think about these kind of popular portrayals of Satan, which often deviate significantly from what Scripture has to say about who Satan actually is. But the reality is, Satan is at work in the world. He is opposing your formation and your transformation by the power of God's grace. And he is not interested in you being changed to walk more in the spirit. He is absolutely interested in you walking in deeper ways of the flesh. The work of Satan is at work in the world to present us with opportunities to indulge in the desires of the flesh. He is a real adversary who seeks to devour God's people. And Paul is saying here, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He then pits them in verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, we're actually going to get to spend a lot more time on this in Romans 7 over the next three weeks because Paul is going to come back to this language of the flesh. But just to make it clear for you, when Paul's talking about the flesh, he's not talking about this. He's not talking about your skin. He's not talking about your body. He's using flesh in a way to kind of invoke a concept, okay? He's pitting two things. He's not saying your body's bad. He's not saying it's bad to, to, to be in body. He's not saying that physical or material things are bad. He's using two concepts to try to communicate this reality. There are competing desires in your life. After you experience God's grace and salvation, your heart is now in a battle. Now, it's a battle that God will win. That's the assurance of grace, but it is a battle, and it's happening every day. He's trying to communicate these two things, and so he's using flesh as a concept. He's not talking about your skin. He's not talking about your body, though we experience many temptations in deeply embodied ways. He's saying, listen, there is a war going on, and it's over the allegiance of your heart. And if you're not careful, you could end up finding yourself on the other side of enemy lines, deeply embedded in something that will destroy you. That's his warning here to the church in Galatia. He's not saying they're going to lose their salvation. He's merely saying, be careful, because the desires of the flesh lead to destruction. The desires of the spirit lead to life. Now, what are examples of these desires? Well, Paul gives them, and they're kind of in three categories here. So let me give you the three broad buckets. He gives three broad buckets of desires of the flesh. The first, lustful desires. Lustful desires. That's the first broad bucket. The second, spiritual evil spiritual evil, and the third, relational division. Now, let me read them out for you, and I'll kind of give you the buckets. You, you'll, you'll hear them as I read them. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Now, that's a lot. Now, and you may think, wow, some of these seem like, like real weird. You know what I'm saying? And I understand. Like, I, I, I get it. Um, I would say two things. One, they were not as weird in Galatia as they might be in Richardson. Um, but one of the things that I think is very easy to do and I would encourage you not to do, um, I think one of the things that's very easy to do with a list like this is to find a couple of them and be like, those don't happen anymore. 
Because they do. Because they do. Uh, they do. They do happen. They, they, maybe they don't happen in your circles, and if that's the case, thanks be to God. Um, but they do happen, uh, and they're closer than you might imagine. Uh, when you spend time pastoring in a community for any length of time, you, you, and you, you become an archaeologist of the place that you live in, you might find yourself stumbling across some things that are a lot harder to find. When you live here for a long time, and, and I hope many of you do, you'll come to find that maybe some of these things that you thought were, were much further, maybe even worlds away, are actually a lot closer than you, you would care to believe. There are three buckets here. Lustful desires. What, are, what is that bucket? Desires to indulge in what our bodies desire in the wrong way. That's what lustful desire is. It's desire to indulge in what our bodies desire the wrong way. That's what lustful desire is, okay? Sex is not bad. Sexual immorality is. That is a desire to indulge in what our body is desiring in the wrong way. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, orgies. Now, I'm not going to go into the weeds on all of these here, um, but I will tell you in August, we're doing a series on what is a person, where we're going to talk specifically about sex and sexuality. Um, we'll put big bumper stickers on it so you'll know uh, what Sunday that is, so you can determine whose ears are in the room. Uh, but we are going to dive into the weeds on this topic, but for today, I'll just say this. Paul is saying about lustful desires that they are a common desire of the flesh, and it's true, they are. But it's not the only bucket he gives us. He also gives us the bucket of spiritual evil. Spiritual evil. What's spiritual evil? Well, it's desire to give our worship and faith away to things that aren't God. Idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry is something we're very familiar with and we're very comfortable with in Christian circles. Talking about idols and the, the, the role they play and how they can lead us astray. Sorcery is one that we feel less comfortable with. But I would actually say that sorcery, at least in the broadest designation of Paul's term here, is maybe the fastest growing religion in the global West. Um, and more on that at another time. But I would just say um, the church of, the, la uh, of the, the back half of the 20th century prepared their children to live in a secular world. You need to be preparing your children to live in a pagan world. Uh, those are different things. Um, different things. The, the, the world that you will end your life following Jesus in, in the global West, will be one that is deeply spiritual and deeply pagan. It will no longer be a secular age. That age is ending. Spiritual evil. And then the third bucket, relational division. Relational division. Desire to put ourselves and our wants before others. Now, there's a lot of these. This is the longest part of the list here. Paul lists enmity, strife, jealousy, Envy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, that's the longest list. Now, all of these other things get more airtime, but this is the longest list and probably the most detailed of the list because it's the most common. All of those others, you might be able to put some distance between you and yourself. Probably not as much distance as you think, but enough to make you feel comfortable. But enmity, strife, jealousy, envy... Dissension, division, rivalry, fits of anger, those strike closer to home. Those, those feel a lot more at home with us in our communities, in our homes, in our church, in our country, in our world. Relational division, desire to put ourselves and our wants before others. And now what do they lead to? Well, Paul says all of these things lead to what? Not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, Paul's not saying that as a Christian, if you 
If you fall into one of these, then you're out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you make one of these the work of your life, if the work of the flesh is the dominant motif of your life, if these things are really what's driving you, then you actually don't belong to the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. If you're completely defined by the works of the flesh, if the works of the spirit have no hold in your life and the works of the flesh have incredible hold in your life, Paul is raising the alarm to say, are you really sure that you know which kingdom you belong to? He's not saying that, listen, if you, you, know, if you envy on a Thursday, then on a Friday, if you die, you're not in the kingdom of God. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, listen, if envy is the theme of your life, if it's never confronted, if you never experience conviction, if sexual immorality is the theme of your life, if it's never confronted, if you never experience conviction, if you just walk in it all your days and all your ways, and you deceive yourself into thinking, I have a stake in the kingdom of God, Paul's saying, maybe consider. Maybe consider that that way of life does not lead to life. It leads to death. He's raising an alarm for us. And I have to tell you, these temptations are ever-present for us. We're under attack by an enemy. We live in a world that is constantly providing temptation. And we must be watchful as a church family. The pressure to be conformed to the world, the pressure to indulge in the desires of the flesh, the attacks of the enemy are real, persistent, and intensifying. And I'm increasingly convinced that the most fertile soil for these things, the desires of the flesh to grow in, are these four things. Okay, the first, spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy is fertile soil for the desires of the flesh to flourish. Spiritual apathy. What I mean by that is allowing yourself to remain bored and indifferent and callous to God for a long period of time. I'm not saying that there aren't weeks, months, days, seasons. If I'm being honest with you, I was telling my wife last night, the last two or three weeks, I've just felt cold. I've just felt callous to the things of the Lord. I've leaned into it. I've put my shoulder into it. I'm praying. I'm seeking God's means of grace. But it has felt, I say chilly because it feels chilly in here right now. Um, it's, felt, it's felt chilled. And I've had to come to the Lord and just beg him and say, I want the, cloud to, I want the clouds to part. I want the darkness to lift. I want to experience nearness and intimacy. I feel right now like there's just a coldness. So I'm not saying that spiritual apathy doesn't set in. I'm saying you don't want it to become toxic, to allow, allow it to go unchecked for too long. Spiritual apathy, isolation. Isolation is fertile soil for the desires of the flesh to grow. Willingly and self-consciously exempting yourself from life with God and life with others. It's fertile soil for the desires of the flesh to grow. It puts you alone and you are vulnerable in a unique way. The third, digital gluttony. Now, that's not something Paul would have had to deal with in his day, but it is a pressing concern in our day. And I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record on this. I, 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 I'm saying it so much because I feel like we're not getting it. Digital gluttony. Digital gluttony is a way of giving your attention over and over and over again to lesser things. It seems innocuous at first, but it's malformative in the long run. And it is going to create incredible collateral in our lives. I, I, I assure you of it. It is happening right now. And it is fertile soil for the desires of the flesh to grow. You're spending more money. You're going into debt. I'm not saying you personally. I'm saying us as a culture. 
We're spending more money. We're going into debt. We have greater anxiety, greater depression. We're seeing more and more divorces, more and more adultery, more and more sexual abuse, and all of this is happening. And there is a great hook that is being put into the pond every single day. And every single day, we put our mouth right on top of it. It's a, it's a lack of watchfulness. And it's not just a you. It's a me thing. It's an us thing. We need to be watchful over this together every single day. And then lastly, sexual immorality. There is at present a real callousness in the heart of the church towards um, sensuality and sexuality. And um, just in the atmosphere, we're being desensitized to it. Um, and our hearts are prone to just be pulled into it. And I would caution us just to ask ourselves, what am I watching? Why am I listening to this? How is it forming me? Now, I know I sound like my father in 1988 right now. Okay, I'm not telling you to go home and burn your records. I'm really not. Okay, I was a Baptist when we boycotted Disney. I'm not saying you have to boycott Disney. Okay, I, truly, please don't misunderstand me here. Okay, I like a good premium drama as much as the next person. But what, I, what I'm just, what I'm encouraging you to do, what, I, what I'm pleading with you to do, would you just begin asking of the things that you're taking in? What is this? And what could it possibly be doing? What is it seeking to do? What, why did they make it? What is going on here? And you don't have to become a conspiracy theorist. Just become reflective. Because these things form and shape and they provoke in a unique way the desires of the flesh. So we need new desires. Because you can't life hack your way out of the desires of the flesh. You need new desires. Desires of the spirit. This is what Paul gives them. He doesn't just say, hey, those are the desires of the flesh. Stay away. Right? It's not just a big keep out sign on life. He, he tells you where to go, right? He says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We need new desires. We don't, we're not, the, the Christian life isn't just putting off the old desires. It's putting on the new desires. We don't just experience the desires of the flesh as Christians. If we are led by the Spirit, we experience new desires that produce something very different. Now, those new desires sometimes, they're like a flickering flame, aren't they? Those desires of the Spirit are sometimes not a bonfire. Okay? If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the desires of the Spirit are not this roaring, raging hearth that we want to organize our whole life and home around. There's, it's just a flickering flame. It almost feels like the wind blows too much, you can put it out. But for those in Christ, that flame, it may get small, but it will never go out. And there are ways to cultivate it. The ways to cultivate are to practice these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I, I can't go through all of them in detail, but I do want to just signal to you four. And I don't know why it's this four. I'm going to be honest. I was praying this week, and I just said, God, give me four of these to say a couple more things about. And these were the four. So I'm going to trust him with that. Love. Love. Genuine, steadfast care for one another. I want to just encourage you, love past the first day. When someone's hurting, 
When someone's in need, when there's crisis, when there's urgency, maybe you've been here before, it's easy to love that person on the first day. It's easy to love that person when the need is pronounced, when it shows up, bang, yes, let's answer the call, let's get there. But to endure in that love, to be steadfast in that love, that, that's the kind of love that Paul has in mind. Loving past the first thing. Not love as a box to check. Yes, I love that person. Check. Done. Love as this active state of enduring past just the first point, the first thing, the first day, the first hurt. Love through what's going on. Loving into a season, an enduring kind of love, a love with some stamina and perseverance here. Love, genuine, steadfast care for one another. Patience. Patience isn't passive. Patience is expectant waiting. Patience is prayerful waiting. Patience doesn't just mean, okay, I don't really know what to do. I guess we'll wait on the Lord, and waiting on the Lord means doing nothing. No, waiting on the Lord means expectant hope. It means expectant prayer. It means seeking and searching and asking and begging and pleading. Psalm 130 is my paradigm for this kind of patience. This, uh, My soul longs for the Lord. I wait for it more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning, this sense of I'm eagerly anticipating what God's going to do and I'm prayerful about it. So patience isn't just passivity, it's expectant waiting. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. What is faithful? Staying the course, even the cost. Staying the course, saying I'm going, we're going to endure. We're going to stay the way. We're going to keep going here. We're going to be faithful to what God has set in front of us. Faithfulness assumes trial. It assumes it. The call to faithfulness isn't like, okay, be faithful because it's super easy. No, it's like, no, the call to faithfulness assumes it's easy to be unfaithful. If it was easy to be faithful, I don't think it'd be a fruit of the Spirit. None of these things are easy when tested. Faithfulness. God's inviting us in to stay the course, to stay faithful first and foremost to him and then to his people and then to what life in his world, living in his ways, looks like. Lastly, self-control. Self-control. Saying no so that we can say yes. Saying no to the things that we feel like, man, that's what I want right now. So that we can say yes to the more valuable things, the more important things. Self-control, I would say, presumes that there is something worth waiting for. That there's something better. Um, I think self-control is an invitation to say, I am not going to taste and see this so that I can taste and see that the Lord is good. It presumes there's something better than what we might be tempted to settle for. And I think there is. And the fruit of the Spirit is not exhaustive. It's a summary form of the Christian's character. It doesn't say everything, but it does say what's essential. And how do we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our life? Well, it's done by God's grace. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. But God invites us into habits and practices that are going to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. You're doing one right now. I know that this seems, it could seem perfunctory. It could seem ordinary. This might seem sometimes arbitrary. But the gathering of God's people week in and week out is kind of the meat and potatoes of the believer saying, Spirit of God, cultivate your fruit in my life. Right? It's not all, but it's something. Reading the Bible, prayer, 
fellowship, confession, singing our songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another in faith. These are ways we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, okay? It's not a silver bullet, but God invites us into these routines and rhythms to form us and to shape us. That, the, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he might awaken within us the desires of the Spirit so that they might change our lives. So if we want to be a people who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit, this is going to involve uprooting and replanting. It's going to involve uprooting the desires of the flesh, the way of the world, the snares of the enemy, and to have the Spirit of God replant there the desires of the Spirit. It can only be done by the power of a new love. Thomas Chalmers said this, the love of the world cannot be expunged or removed by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but it must be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. He said it uh, in summary, we need the explosive power of a new affection. The explosive power of a new affection. We need a new affection to be awakened within us to where the old desires, they seem thin. They seem weak. They seem lacking because we know that there is something better. Something that will meet the desires of the spirit that will be a greater object of joy and love and treasure for us so that we might be motivated to walk in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean for us? Well, I want to draw your attention to three obstacles and three opportunities. Three temptations and three opportunities, just to close us out. Three temptations to walking in the desires of the Spirit. The first, a culture of reactivity. A culture of reactivity. Reaction versus response. We live right now in a culture of reactivity, and you will not be able to practice the fruit of the Spirit and you will have plenty of room to practice the desires of the flesh in a culture of reactivity. Because in a culture of reactivity, everyone is quick to speak, slow to listen, certain about everything, curious about nothing. That's a culture of reactivity. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to embrace a sober-minded response. We need to be slow to speak, quick to listen, certain about certain things, curious about everything else. That's the difference between a faithful response and an unfaithful reaction. What would it mean for you to begin to embrace patience, gentleness, self-control, and a culture of reactivity? Maybe it means when you have the chance to send the snarky text message, to leave the angry comment, right? To post that passive-aggressive thing that you just say, No. Just say no. And you ask God, God, would you, whatever that was that was driving my heart in that moment, could you, move, could you take that out and put something healthier there, something better there? You name it. A culture of reactivity. We also live in a culture of apathy. And culture of apathy, and it's interesting because, at least in our community, uh, apathy doesn't play itself out um, with nothingness. Apathy really plays itself out in our community with living burnout lives. Because you boom, 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 and I can see it. I can see it all over our lives as a community. Just you hit the wall, you crash through the wall. Okay, there's the next wall. We're going to crash through that wall. we got a bunch of achievers in here, you know? Let me crash through that wall, crash through the next wall, crash through the next wall. Okay, yeah, this is, you know, it's just a busy season. It's not, you know. Your life is busy. It's not a seasonal thing any longer. 
you know, and we keep just kind of glossing over it. But the reality is, is that spiritual apathy and apathy in general in our community sets in not because of a lack of urgency, but because of a lack of fervency. Now, the difference is this. Urgency is being busy with superficial things. That's what urgency is. And we live in our community in a culture of urgency. And that urgency, it exhausts people to where they bottom out and they go, I can't do anything else. I got to just completely withdraw. I'm totally burnt out. Right, either because of job, high-impact careers, man, overcommitment and superficial things. There is a culture of urgency that leads to apathy because it just exhausts you. So how do we respond to a culture of urgency? We embrace a culture of fervency. If urgency is being busy with superficial things, fervency is being busy with formational things. It's being busy with things that matter. I, I don't want your lives to be less busy. I really don't. I don't, I, I don't want you to have more bandwidth. I don't want you to have more margin. I don't. Okay? All of those things are illusions that have been sold to you by the very same people who are profiting off of you not doing them. I don't want you to have more bandwidth. I don't want you to have more margin. I want you to give more of your time and attention to things that matter and less of your time and attention to things that don't. And I want you to learn how to be sober-minded with going, you know what? Working 65 to 80 hours a week is not the life I want to live. And so I'm, I'm not going to. And for you to be okay with that, for you to be okay with saying no to the next promotion, for you to being okay with your kid being left out of an activity, for you to be okay with saying, you know what? We just can't make it to 25 Christmas parties in December. You know, we just can't. Um, I can't respond to every text on the text thread. You know, uh, I, I don't know what your vice is. I don't know the thing that keeps you driving in a culture of urgency, but whatever it is, I would love for you to take it uh, into God's pawn shop and to exchange it with something of consequence. Uh, and take it in and exchange it for something that matters. What would it mean for you to begin to embrace faithfulness, love, and joy in a culture of apathy? Let me just challenge you, just a basic thing you could do here. What if you took twice a year and you sat down with everyone in your home, whoever that might be, roommates, friends, a spouse, your kids, you sat them down and you asked this question, how can we give more of our lives away to life in Christ, life together, and life on mission, and less of our life away to distractions from that? And you just had that conversation. I don't know if it's a whiteboard, if it's a chalkboard, if it's pen and paper, if it's your iPad, if it's a computer, whatever it is. But to just go, let's talk about it together. What would it be like for the next six months for us to get out of this cycle where we are constantly preoccupied with things that are not producing commensurate fruit. Do we need to change jobs? Okay, let's rally the community to do that. Do we need to say no to something we've already said yes to? Okay, let's make the call. Do we need to say yes to something we've already said no to? Okay, let's do that. And to do that in a way that's free from shame and free from fear. A culture of apathy. And lastly, the third temptation is a culture of immorality. A culture of immorality. We have an incredible temptation, always and ever presently, but now specifically, for conformity over contextualization, being conformed. Conformity is this. Conformity is allowing our Christian witness to be compromised by where and when we live. That's conformity. Conformity is allowing our Christian witness to be compromised by where and when we live. That's conformity. God is saying, nope, 
not for you. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, that's different from contextualization. If conformity is allowing our witness to be compromised by where and when we live, contextualization is allowing our witness to be shaped by where and when we live. We're not going to change what we believe. Those things are enduring truths. We're not going to change how God has called us to live in this world. That is the calling of God in our life. It's not a cultural moment, but we do want our witness to be shaped by where and when we live. I mean, just real basically, here in the life of our community, there are things that we do as a church family that we do because we felt like, okay, this is going to engage our community. That's okay. We want to do that. We want to bless and serve and be able to speak in a way that's intelligible, that makes sense. What would it mean for you and I to begin to embrace goodness and kindness in the culture of immorality? What does it mean to pursue purity in a culture where we feel the constant pressure to call evil good and good evil? What does purity look like in that age? So we have an opportunity to respond. We have an opportunity to respond. We can respond this way, by embracing the fruit of the Spirit. And in so doing, to cultivate holiness, to cultivate health, to cultivate humility. Cultivate these things in a way that's honest about where we are and where God is inviting us to go. Our resolution is to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to come back to this a couple more times over the course of the year because it's not like it's just like, hey, guys, it's easy for you to forget this. It's easy for me to forget this. It's easy for us to forget, to lose sight. I was thinking, um, this is in my notes, so... Let's see where it goes. <laughs> um, uh, I was thinking of, there's this song in Hamilton. How many of you have seen Hamilton? Okay, lots of you. Um, there's this song in Hamilton where Eliza, who's Hamilton's wife, is appealing to him because he's just so driven. He keeps going, keeps going. It's creating incredible collateral, a lot of which he does not see, where he's justifying for the greater good. And Eliza is appealing to him to basically adopt a quiet life. That's what the appeal is. That's the whole song. And the phrase that she keeps using is, it would be enough. It would be enough. That's her appeal. Like if, you just, if you were just faithful to the, like, the fundamentals, it'd be enough. It's like you were just, a, in her song, if you were just here, like if you were just a faithful husband, if you were just a faithful dad, if you were just a good man, who lived, it would be enough. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit on first glance, it can feel like, yeah, I mean, baseline, right? Everything on top of this, that's when it really gets going. But what I want you to see today and what I want you to hear from me is this. It, that would be enough. It would be enough for you to say, my life in Christ and walking in the power of the Spirit and walking in the way of the Spirit, if these things became embodied virtues and values in your life, it would be enough. It would be a faithful expression of what God has invited us to in Jesus. It would be a faithful way to honor and follow the Lord in our day and age and our moment and in our time. It would be enough. You will stand out. You will be in contrast with the world if you live out these things in public ways. And if you don't believe me, try it. And let's see what we find out together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We pray, God, that as we go from this place today, that you would bless us in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit with an abundancy of the fruit of the Spirit. That we truly would be marked by love, joy, peace, patience.
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Because in your kingdom, there is no law against these things. Help us to walk in your ways. Not to earn your grace, we never could, but because we have been gifted your grace. And we stand on it as people free to live in righteousness. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.